0: All right, let's try this.
1: Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess Podcast.
0: Yeah, episode
1: 22, baby. (laughs) I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke. And we are here tonight talking about Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear.
0: The Wise Man's Fear. We're going to be covering chapters eighty-seven through ninety-three.
1: Finally, some of my favorite stuff in the series.
0: Oh, it was you so have to good. Read
1: about it. It was so good. It so was before so we get good. into it. Yeah. Next week, we are going to be covering chapters ninety-four through one hundred and three. So, if you're reading along with us, first of all, a plus. Yeah, if bra- you are.
0: Bravo. You are a very slow reader. <laughs>
1: uh real quick do you want to go over our spoiler policy
0: yeah the spoiler policy is very simply that we will not spoil anything past chapter 103 of the wise man's fear liz has read the book several times i have not finito
1: indeed so don't spoil chad i know it's getting really difficult as we come to the end of the books because it's hard to remember what we've talked about and what we haven't but if possible try not to spoil him cuz i like seeing his the look on his face when he finally gets to that really good part it was fun i just he thinks i'm sleeping next to him at night but i have one eye <laughs> and i'm trying to see where he is in the book that's not creepy it's yeah it's not true <laughs> i mean who would do that
0: <laughs> all right so last time we walked around a lot and told a lot of stories and we kind of got to a place where we felt like something exciting was going to happen and then and then it didn't quite happen so not the greatest i mean not uninteresting or anything but just not not a whole lot happened last time but here's what did happen one of the things that did happen is i made a series of predictions and damn near every one of them was wrong <laughs> <laughs> so I want to highlight.
1: You all know so, how hard it is for me to sit here while he's predicting and just and nod, and I have to give the same nod to all of them because he he doesn't know what
0: are you supposed to I do.
1: Know. Okay, hey, that's a good thought.
0: That's a great idea. Completely fucking wrong. <laughs> so, first prediction I made last week was that the Bandit Hunt is not going to end in some huge D anD D like fight where they stumble upon a campsite, (laughs) kill all the bad guys, and take the loot and go home.
1: I loved it when you said that. That was my favorite prediction ever. And
0: it was, (laughs) that is precisely what happened.
1: Oh, it was so hard. It was so hard not to slow blink at you.
0: Plank, (laughs) plank. Plank, plank. Yeah, that that was prediction number one. It didn't get a lot better from there. The other one I said was, we're not going to get to hear the end of the Jack story. He's just going to bring that up and leave it there.
1: <laughs> that's right. Whew.
0: Just going to bring it up and leave it there. Let's see. One of the there There's a couple of others that I made that didn't really have anything to do with this particular episode. But the other one I said was, this D&D party has been making too much noise, and the bandits are going to find them instead of them finding the bandits. Now, jury out on that, because they did try to ambush Tempe in the woods. So, right. So that's a 50-50 one, but... I just wanted to highlight that my prognostication skills, much like Nostradamus, all full of shit.
1: You were, yeah, you were not doing so great last week.
0: No, no, really, really not doing well. So let's talk about what happened this time.
1: So this time, in a nutshell, we we start off a bit slow with Tempe finally talking about the Lathani. I didn't think it started slow, it started with a bar fight. Okay, I mean, and and then we get the the rest of the story about Jax, Mm -hmm. which I'll be very honest with you, uh, this time through, preparing for this podcast and taking notes took me much longer than usual because I usually skip that chapter, if I'm being (laughs) honest. I mean, I read it the first time through, and then I'm I'm in the books, and I know this exciting part is coming up that I love and usually read three times in Mm -hmm. a read, you know, and I'm like, and Jax, blah, 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 blah. And I just skip it. So this time through, I'm going through, and I'm like, I have to read it and take notes. And I was like, there's so much There's in a here. lot there, yeah. There's so much symbolism. There's a
0: lot there, yeah. So
1: anyway, sorry. And then all bloody hell breaks loose.
0: Yeah, it does. And we have
1: this fantastic battle.
0: Somebody rolled a critical hit. Natural 20 on the die.
1: Absolutely. And it's so satisfying, after all the tromping around, to have this really just great straight-out brawl.
0: It was very exciting. I'm not, not not gonna fib. I mean, you go back and you, you're like, hmm, what does all this mean? You know, you start reading back through it, and you're like, does that make sense? Does this make sense? You know, but when you're reading it, it's just like, wow. I mean, the one, the only thing that robs it a little bit is that you know, Quoth isn't gonna die, but you don't know that anybody else in the story survives. You right. know, and I was like. You know, I was like, they're all they're all gonna die. I mean, I know Quoth wasn't gonna die, but but uh, it was well done.
1: It was, it well was. Done. So let's get into the chapters a little bit. Chapter eighty seven is called the Lithani and as you said, pretty much starts with a bar fight.
0: Yeah, it starts with a bar th- a bar fight, and you know them going into Croissant to get supplies. Uh, of course, the, everybody picks on Tempe you know, wearing his 8M reds and making all his fancy lad money. And he ends up in a giant bar fight. Quoth kind of makes an ass of himself in front of Tempe because he pulls a knife out. And then Tempe sort of gives him a lecture. And a part of that lecture is talking about the Lathani and what that means.
1: It was so interesting for me, the development that we see in Tempe in this chapter. Because up until now, he's been this really stoic, mercenary character um you know very fremen like i i think the ADMR. yeah and he doesn't show a lot of emotion he seems like not a flighty kind of character but as we are getting to know him we're seeing that he just kind of expresses those things in different ways so he and both are walking to croissant i don't want to keep on saying croissant but (laughs) <laughs> is it croissant or croissant i,
0: I say croissant croissant, but croissant
1: okay they're walking to croissant who maybe you can edit that part out though
0: we don't <laughs> that's not happening
1: they're walking and they hear something in the bushes and and they both kind of freak out and uh, then they're both embarrassed yeah, yeah. and w- we don't see tempe's composure break very often but we see it there and so we can see that they're all just on edge. They're all kind of miserable, and so they go into this bar. And just like Dayton was getting in his face the other day,
0: mm-hmm.
1: this guy starts getting in his face. And just like Dayton, Tempe pretty much calls him a dog, and is pretty much like check, 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 talk, yeah. talk, talk. Yeah. Um. So there are a couple of just great lines.
0: There are some pretty funny lines.
1: Before Before we get into that, I just want to point out that the inn at Croson is called the Laughing Moon. Oh, okay. So we always point out when the moon is referenced because there's a lot of that lately. But we see some of Tempe's humor. In particular, the Adem calls his mother a whore, and Tempe asks what that is, and Quoth explains it to him, and he says, is he attempting to buy sex with me, or does he wish to fight?
0: Well, first he says, thank you very much.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then when he says, you know, is he attempting to buy sex with me, or does he wish to fight? And then... You know, then he says, tell him to go away and make sure he brings enough women so that he can feel comfortable. Right. You know, which I take it that that he's not being he's not being he's not denigrating women. It's a difference in their culture. But of course, that's not how that's not how the caravan guard bully takes it. He takes it as an insulting thing.
1: Right. And recently we saw Tempe deliberately misunderstanding language in order to make a joke and just mm-hmm. makes you wonder, you know, when we had him talking about the mayor and the hairy balls.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It makes me wonder if that's what he's doing here as well and is he more uh, adept with the language than we think he is and then he has a moment where Quoth thinks for a minute that he's using idiomatic speech, yeah. which I loved, when he turns to him and says, all right, I'm going to fight these guys. Watch, Watch
0: my, my back. is <laughs> like, I got you, bro. I got your back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> if they if they kick your ass, what am I gonna do?
1: <laughs> like, well, and it's so interesting here to see, quote, afraid of fighting.
0: You yeah, know, and it he, is.
1: he had there's a little passage where he talks about okay, he's seen bar fights before, but this is a fight between some dangerous men and Tempe and his friend is only one. We see him afraid of this physical conflict. He's not hasn't seen anything like this. This is not part of his. Mm-mm. And it's just so funny given what he's been sent out here to do. Yeah. And how, he, how he's just been so blithely, okay, we're dropping through the woods and I'm going to kill some guys. And uh, he's just so woefully unprepared.
0: The other thing I noticed in this chapter is that And it started with me with the quote, thinking that Tempe is using idiomatic speech thing. It goes further back than that. But it's another example of him in his internal dialogue, really kind of the meta conversation that he's having with the Chronicler. It's him saying things like, oh, he was using idiomatic speech when and being very confident of that fact when that's not at all what's really going on. Just like in the last section when he said, of course, the Lothani was just a childhood, you know, silly story.
1: He's just like our oldest child. She knows everything. Everything. Just ask her. Just ask her. And she can rattle off facts that she has completely made up, like...
0: The speed at which she can make those things up is quite impressive. Like
1: a hot knife cutting through butter. Like, <laughs> that's how quickly yeah. she makes things up about anything you want to know.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: And so that's what both reminds me of.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting to me because I go back now and I'm... When I'm looking up something, I'm trying to figure out if something's been brought up before or something like that. And I go back and I reread an old chunk of an old chapter and I see him make some sort of assertion. And I think that doesn't mean anything now. (laughs) Like, whereas I used to would have taken it at face value that he says, Oh, but everybody knew that this and this and that. And I would have said, Oh yeah. Okay. But now I think "Eh, that doesn't really mean anything coming from you because he says in his conversations where he's telling the chronicler, he says things all the time that we figure out after the fact are completely wrong.
1: But they're all from his perspective at the time. Oh, yeah, they were correct. So I don't want to veer into this is both an unreliable narrator debate that goes back and forth. And that that's a separate issue. I think that the story he's telling is true from his perspective at the time. Oh, agreed,
0: agreed. But that's
1: a, a very important aspect of his character is his certainty that he understands and knows how the world works. And, his certainty that he knows more about the world than he really probably does.
0: Oh definitely. But
1: does. his need to understand or to at least think that he understands everything. And if he doesn't understand it, it's not worth knowing.
0: It's just I'm I'm becoming more aware of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point.
0: The the other thing I noticed so before the fight happens, Quoth gets in a conversation with one of the guys in the bar saying, what's going on? Is it a market day? You know, like he's trying to figure out what the hell's going on and why the bar is filled with all these mercenaries. So the first thing the guy says is that any of these guys would join, join your caravan and then cut your throat on the first night in your sleep. It kind of makes me wonder about the bandits because you start to think, okay, well, they have to come and get supplies at some point too. I mean, certainly they take things off of the people they rob, but at some point they got to run out of things. They need to come to town too. How many are they coming into town and then joining caravans and then, you know, and that's kind of one of their tricks. I, I think we can rule out that any of the men in the bar here were any of the people in the bandit fight, but it was just something that sort of made me wonder and puzzle at that question in particular, because we know that somebody's tipping them off about the wagon trains and the tax, you know, the tax collectors that are coming through, but we don't know who it is and how. It could be that some of these guys were in cahoots and just spreading communication. It's just something to keep in mind as far as that goes. But the other thing and the big thing is that after talking about the wagon trains and people being killed by bandits, he also says, and with all the folk who have gone missing— And says it in a way that leads me to believe that that is separate from the bandits.
1: Yeah, and that's a very good point.
0: It's Falurian.
1: Those are some really good notes. So we've got, I love the description of the fight. I think that Patrick Rothfuss does a good job describing action. Action for me in a novel has to be written really well for me not to kind of gloss over it. So he does a good job. So Tempe just dispatches these mercenaries, these trained fighters. He just, with mechanical efficiency, dispatches him. And in fact, one of the punches, I love this description, the most polite punch I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. So he does it without anger, without any kind of passion. He just just cleans the floor with them in a period of seconds.
0: When he said he did it with the prof- the proficiency of a carpenter who knows how to hit a hammer just enough to drive it home without bruising any of the wood around it. Right. You know, that he had done this 10,000 times before.
1: Right. And then he turns to Quoth and says, did you watch my back?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And he's like, oh, watch your
0: back. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, and then they go through on a long discussion. And I didn't didn't really write notes on this because I felt the conversation was fairly straightforward. But I've also missed hidden messages before. But they have a long conversation about what is the Lathani? Because until this conversation, I didn't know. I actually thought the Lathani, my guess just in my head, was that it was an old group of people that the Adem were descended from, or they were just like the gods of the Adem, or something like that. I somehow thought it was people or a group of characters, not what it is, which is sort of like the Fremen way. It's the... You know, it's the
1: is the Fremen. Isn't it right? (laughs) It's
0: it's the path. It's the you know, the the ethos that they have, you know, and they and they talk for quite a while about that.
1: Right. So it was interesting to see first Tempe is really struggling with being able to talk to both about this. It's hard for him to even put into words in his own language. And you you get the sense that there's a huge taboo against him speaking about the Lathani so he kind of says well you tell me what you think it is and Kvoth says uh it's a secret thing that makes the Adem strong uh if you know it you can't lose a fight uh fear is the mind killer basically <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I shall allow it to pass over me and through me
1: <laughs> right so it's yeah it's the Fremen way yeah. and um but then, and and Tempe's like, yes, that's what it is. And then Quoth goes on to be like, and yeah. And then you you put your words down inside of you, and they turn into word fire. And Tempe's like, no, no, no,
0: no, no, no. <laughs> what the hell are you talking? What
1: about? you have said is mad talking and also crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's my new phrase.
0: Mad talking and also crazy.
1: What you have said is mad talking and also crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is deserved it of its own. Its own so meme. it's yeah. it's
1: hard to understand the Lothani, but you definitely get the sense that we're going to learn more about it in the future and that it's going to be something important.
0: Yeah. My favorite part of the chapter is how it ends, which is with Tempe asking him, so do you understand now? And Quoth going, no. <laughs> and Tempe being, it is good that you understand yes. that you do not know because that is very unquoth."
1: Yes. You know so nothing Quoth, about alchemy.
0: Yeah. Right. So, it, so, Quoth does a couple of things that are very undoed. Very unquote, very undue. Which, <laughs> you know, he pulls out the knife. Yes. It's like that is very undoed, right? Yeah. And that has allowed me to project in my head John Goodman as Tempe in the red leathers. And now Tempe is Walter Sobchek.
1: I don't think you could pick a fictional character farther away from Tempe. I,
0: I don't care.
1: Than Walter (laughs) Sobchak.
0: My head cast for Tempe is now Walter (laughs) Sobchak. Jesus,
1: Lord. Mine is Mikhail Barishnikov. So, I mean, young Mikhail Barishnikov. I don't know why.
0: That makes sense, actually. Not Swedish enough, though.
1: It's true. I mean, he's Russian.
0: Yeah. They're related. They're very closely related.
1: Indeed. Are we ready to go on to chapter 88? I'm ready. So, chapter 88 is called Listening. And in this one, we finally get the end of Hesby's story about Jax chasing the moon.
0: Absolutely. Also, this is where Dayton and Hesby do it in the bushes. What? They absolutely were doing it in the bushes.
1: I don't think they were.
0: I guarantee you they were. Dayton and Hesby doing it in the bushes.
1: Okay.
0: It happened okay that's canon (laughs) put it down put it in a wiki somewhere (laughs) that shit happened
1: so like I said in the beginning this is usually a chapter that I gloss over haven't found it very interesting but there's so much here to talk about in particular what interests me is the character of Jax, because we've had other stories within stories, mm-hmm. but never such deep character development for a character of a story within a story, which makes me feel like Jax represents somebody or something.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of elements in this story where this represents that and that represents this. Like, There's a lot of that to the story. I, I, It's interesting. We haven't talked about this, and yet I think we're coming at it from kind of the same angle but go ahead
1: right my sense so every other story within a story has been a straightforward sort of parable the characters have been characterized by one sort of quality either they were foolish or they were wise or this happened or that happened but Jax is deeper and not the typical hero of a story he's kind of a dick
0: he's a dick yeah
1: and uh is very complex and broken so it's really interesting to learn what what we learn about Jack. So I have some notes here. And the first is that Jack's made his own way and he grew up clever and sly. So he is traveling, he's chasing the moon, he meets a listener,
0: mm-hmm.
1: an old man living on a mountaintop, the proverbial old man in the hut. And the old man says, Your heart is broken and you never even had a chance to use it. Yep. So that really stuck out.
0: Yeah, I wrote that down too. Yep. How sad. Your heart is broken before you had a chance to even use it.
1: So the old man starts talking to him, the listener, starts talking to him uh, about what he's doing and is in his own way is trying to help him, but Jax is not really listening to him. No, not having it. And is, again, going to make his own way. And the old man keeps trying to say things to him like, when you love something, you have to make sure it loves you back and convinces him that instead of going to the moon he needs to get the moon to come to him but what Jax hears is I have to make the moon come to me Mm -hmm. so the old man asks what he has brought in his um, for the moon Jax goes right to the material things that he has again his focus is on the wrong thing so he pulls out the third pack and I feel these objects have are going to have some kind of significance I don't know what but he has a folding house Mm -hmm. a flute, and a box.
0: Mm -hmm. An empty box that will not open. An
1: empty box that will not open. And this is where it gets very interesting. The listener says to Jax, this is the emptiest thing I have ever heard. And I think that's significant because we've recently had a run-in with a cryptic strange box that won't open.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And the way to open the box is to... Listen to it and speak to it, and so the the listener helps him learn that. Mm-hmm. And um, at, for me, this is just all about the theme that we've seen of perception. Yeah, and we've heard so much about you know from back when we talked about Celatos blinding himself, and he's a very important character, and the the term Elir and puzzle accusing both of looking but not seeing. Elidan smacking Fella on the head and telling her to look. This yep. is just over and over again, the idea of looking. But we haven't really heard about listening, so it's interesting to hear this.
0: Yeah, from a different angle.
1: From a different angle. Um, so Jax builds an unlucky crooked house and tricks the moon into giving up part of her name, and tr- which traps her in our world for a time. That's the story. And we don't usually do that detailed of a recap, but I just want to put all that out there because I think it's, Every piece of that symbolizes something or is going to have some importance in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's a lot of things in there. A couple things that I noted, um, and this is sort of one of the least of, but this is the first reference that I recall about the road to Tinue. Tinue. Tinuwe. okay. Tinue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now we've definitely heard that before.
0: I don't know that it's come up prior to this.
1: It's definitely has.
0: Has. Okay. That's
1: a common phrase. How was the road to Tunue? Okay. Because in the old folklore, all roads lead through it. Well, so, I know that
0: was that story he told um, back when they were drunken on their way back, but uh, it may have come up there. It's
1: mentioned in other stories okay. as well. And in yeah. fact, I believe when Quoth first meets Chronicler, he says, how was the road to Tinue? And mm. Chronicler goes, what? And he goes, never mind.
0: Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Got you. Okay. Uh, let's see. So so a lot of the notes are the thing, same things I had. I think we, I wanted to focus on a couple things. So one, Jack's poor boy obsessed with a singular focus.
1: Mm. And
0: he does, he wants to find that. In his case, he wants to be happy. And he does not care the cost to others.
1: Very nice notes.
0: He does not care the cost to others. So, and he does not have the patience to learn to listen because he's so obsessed with the thing he has got to get that he won't even listen to the answers, you know, but then it gets down to into, okay, who are the symbols? Okay. So Jack's, at least on the surface is very, very clearly quote broken heart before he even had a chance to use it. Explain some of why he, we know he has this skill with naming, But why he still struggles with it, you know, because of his broken heart and his sleeping mind, which he allowed to slumber um, because he because he was so heartbroken. And then, you know, how he's witty and kind of got along on, on his own and had no end of bad luck. The moon I looked at as the quest, his obsession with the Chandrian and then the box being all the answers and then the not that he chewed at being Dena. I mean, that, those are the way that's the kind of way I see it.
1: Those are some really interesting thoughts. I don't know if I agree with both being Jack's or okay. Jack's being a stand in for mm-hmm. him. If anything, I see coat as more similar to Jack's in that, when I look at Jax, I see someone who is defined by his brokenness, and I don't see that in Quoth.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm equating them together. So right,
1: no, I'm. I mean, I think that, but I really see Coat as a completely different person and someone that Quoth constructed, and maybe he was inspired in part by the story of Jax mm. to be someone similar to that. But those are some all really interesting thoughts, and I definitely think the fruitless quest that blinds you to the effects of your actions is definitely a symbolic thing that, yeah. that refers to our protagonist.
0: Yeah. And I, re- I, so I missed a note that I wrote down here. So the house I have, um, being the truth of the world, hmm. the, the things that are really going on in the world that are out there, but quoth, in his rush to put things together, never gets the right perspective. So what he gets is kind of a mismatch of things that aren't quite the truth, a mismatch version from here, a little bit from there. But ultimately, he doesn't care because it's about being a tool to get him to his goal. So that tells me that a lot of the things that Quoth thinks are true are not quite the truth that he thinks that they are. So his impression of what is going on with the Chandrian, his impression of what he sees with the Ymir, his impression of what he sees with Dena, he has a truth in his mind, and it's partially correct, but it's also, in some significant ways, mismatched from the real reality, which is why he has rooms that, you know, some are spring and some are autumn. So the other thing that this kind of reminded me of or made me think about was that when Denna's real name is revealed, I think it's going to be hugely significant.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: That whoever she's tied to from a family standpoint, it's going to be something really really significant.
1: She's his aunt. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness. She she's a secret Targaryen too? <laughs>
1: oh my secret god. Targaryen.
0: Aegon Targaryen got around.
1: My favorite or, Game of Thrones mm-hmm. season 7 meme was, you know, the picture of um Rhaegar and and someone saying those poor Targaryens. They only had one wig to share. <laughs> Just one wig and the name Aegon, that's it. That's all they had, right?
0: Aegon this and Aegon that. So yeah, that's, I mean, there's a lot in chapter 88, but that's kind of all I got there. Do you have anything else for 88?
1: No, and I honestly, I don't have a whole lot for 89.
0: I have very little for 89 I think I
1: just wrote, 30 days into their hunt, they find the bandits.
0: (laughs) What I wrote was, it rains a lot. Quoth has wet feet because he didn't listen to the stupid tinker and Tempe kills two dudes.
1: Right. So things start moving plot wise, but yeah. character wise, symbolism wise, not well, a whole lot happens in this. Chapter. Yeah, I mean,
0: what happens is that, you know, it's the end of that big story with Jax and all that stuff. And then it starts to rain. Martin starts to get sick. Dayton starts to get much, much worse. And they just kind of really hit the misery stride. Of their quest, and then they're sitting at the campfire. They're all bitchy. Dayton lets the fire go out because he and Hespi, see they they were doing it earlier, and now they're fighting. And um, so, Quoth and Dayton, they're you know they're yelling about the fire. He's trying to put the fire together. Uh, John Goodman sits down and he's like, "I had to kill two nihilists."
1: He's not John Goodman. <laughs>
0: It's Walter Sobchak.
1: Don't ruin Tempe for me, you oh, bastard! On.
0: How you mean ruin Walter Sobchak? <laughs> Who's the bigger hero here? <laughs> I mean, really, we have to ask ourselves that. So, um, so yeah, so not a lot really happens in this in this chapter, but this is kind of the beginning of all the stuff that's about to happen.
1: Right. So. One interesting thing is that Tempe comes back when he sits down and says, "I killed two men." Yeah, and he lets us know that it's not easy for him to kill two men. Not physically, it wasn't difficult, but it does take an emotional toll. It's a mental yeah. stressor for him, which is interesting considering what we think we know about the Adem's—that they're mercenaries, they're ruthless, they're—they have no emotions. So we start to see a little more in this and the following chapters their views on the dead and on killing and we we learned a little bit more about that when he was talking to Quoth about the lathani and how pulling a knife is not of the lathani you know we saw how workmanlike he was about the blows that he landed in the bar fight it was not about harming the people it was about accomplishing a purpose yep mm-hmm. so for him and the adem it seems like killing is a last resort and something that is not taken lightly, which is interesting in a mercenary society.
0: It also shows that everybody who looks at the ADEM and says they're heartless, thoughtless killers is because, simply because they don't understand their culture and they don't understand their expressions. And, you know, and they assume, therefore, something different about them than what's actually truth.
1: So are, are you ready to move on? Yeah, I'm ready. To, chapter 90 is called To Sing a Song About. And in this chapter, the group decides in a roundabout way to start chasing after the bandits. They head off. It's not ideal conditions for tracking. Uh, Both asks Dayden and Hesby to stay with the camp, which they're not happy about. But they go off. They've got about an hour of good light left. And they're going to try and find them. The first thing that really jumped out at me, especially on this read through, and I don't know if I noticed it before, was that the bandits left a very clear trail. Now, this is a group that has been hiding in the woods successfully for a long time. They've seen no hide nor hair of them. And now out of nowhere, they come bumbling along, leaving a trail clear as day.
0: And it made me wonder
1: if it was deliberate. Hmm. were they sent out to get their attention and lead them back to to set a trap for them.
0: Hmm. Maybe. I mean if that's the case they didn't do a great job of it.
1: Well, it's true it was a crappy trap, but
0: I mean <laughs> <laughs> trap nonetheless. I
1: wonder if
0: There's a lot of unanswered questions. About I wonder
1: this. if someone knew that they were being hunted and said, "Hey, go out there see if you can draw these guys in and then didn't realize that they had a insane necromancer, yeah, right? <laughs> who was hunting them, and bit off more than they can chew, but it, it made me wonder if it was deliberate
0: yeah that that very well could be uh that is not something I had thought of, so good good call on that. My main thoughts in this chapter w- were that this is where quotes leadership starts to break down, and this is not really a slight unquote. it's just the conditions are such that, you know, Martin's sick, everyone's just exasperated, everybody wants us to be over with, and so they rush in headlong, and they do what is tactically not the right thing to do. You know, what Quoth wanted to do was he wanted to go there, observe them, see what he was getting himself into, and concoct a plan that they could come back and execute later. And that would have been the right thing to do. But he can't really hold back the tide of all the frustration and anger and unfortunate circumstances of the group. And and the momentum just sort of carries them, it, plus some bad decisions on people's part, just kind of carries them into that fight that they were really not prepared for.
1: Right. So, Quoth had asked Dayden and Hespy to stay with the camp, and they were not happy about it, and they decide— much like Jax, to go their own way. And after Tempe and Martin and Quoth have been gone a while, they get up, they hide the gear, and start following them on their own. And Quoth does something very clever here, I thought, when Dayton shows up and he realizes, okay, this is, this is going down, I guess. Yeah. And he sort of piggybacks on the story that Hespi has recently told, wherein Jax has tricked the moon into captivity by getting a part of her name. Mm-hmm. And he gets Dayden to swear on his name that he will obey his every order. And then he very deliberately says his name three times. And on the third time, he uses the, the moment that he has made to feed a little bit of warmth just so he would get sort of a tingly sensation. Yeah, And then he gives his best to Borland the Great smile and says, I have your name now. Yeah, <laughs> That's another thing I am going to start cryptically saying. I have your name now. I have mastery over you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in his little toborland, the Great Smile is also where I feel like the first pangs of the lightning kind of comes into play. And what you notice through this chapter and the next chapter um, is that the lightning strikes are timed, not perfectly, but in a number of circumstances in such a way as to really kind of coincide with what Quoth wants to happen and with what Quoth needs to happen in order to make in order to have any degree of success here.
1: There's a lot of interesting, unexplained, almost supernatural things happening.
0: Yep. And this is to me, this is the first crack of it. When he cracks the Taborland the Great smile in one flash of the lightning and then and then it's gone an instant later. And he did that deliberately as a showmanship thing. To make it more creepy to Dayden, but it's really, it's just the first of several instances where the lightning really kind of bends to his will.
1: There's definitely some foreshadowing there, for sure. So chapter 91 is always a chapter that every time I read this book...
0: Well, there's, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, so the, the other part of this, and, the, and and maybe I don't need to say this, but the the other part of this is this is where they kill the first century, Yes. And they have the body of the century, but they haven't really you know so at this point they're kind of in they're kind of beginning to be committed to, to this fight.
1: Well, and I think we forgot to mention too that Tempe w- leads them to the two bandits that he killed. Yeah. And correct. is very reluctant to have Quoth even examine them. Yeah. Or he, touch them in any way.
0: And he also seemed to be a little unsure of what Quoth was going to do. Right. All right, so chapter ninety one.
1: Chapter ninety one is called "Flame, Thunder, Broken Tree." Oh, I think
0: it's where it all goes it's a down.
1: Great chapter title. Definitely is going to be significant later in the book. So put a mental pin in that. Okay. Particular chapter title. You'll be glad you did. What is it
0: again? Say it again.
1: Flame, thunder, broken tree. Check. So this is the chapter where it all goes down. Quoth and his merry band approach the bandit settlement.
0: (laughs) They they roll for surprise.
1: They do. They fail.
0: They roll for initiative and win.
1: It's like that last conflict that our D&D party that we were playing with the kids. Oh, yeah. Where our oldest was getting tired of the game. And so she just rode deliberately right into an ambush just to get it over with. (laughs) Yeah. That's That's basically what Dayton does here.
0: That's basically what happens, yeah.
1: So, one thing that I noticed this time through, and I guess we could do you want to give like a little recap of the plot so we can sketch out what we're talking about here?
0: I I mean, I don't think anybody's going to not remember what happens in this chapter. Essentially, they, through huge heroic efforts and crazy sympathy and perhaps some divine intervention, managed to kick the bandit's ass. And one mysterious person who, quote, recognizes but can't put his, really put his memory on, uh, disappears in the middle of the fight. So that's the summary.
1: Right. And the fight ends by, quote, having Martin shoot an arrow into the tree mm-hmm. in the middle of the clearing, making some kind of tenuous binding he thinks between an arrow, he's holding the arrow in the tree and causing lightning to strike the tree and basically blow the hell out of the bandits. This is after he somehow uses a dead bandit and somehow links him to the living bandits and is able to murder them one by one by stabbing the dead body, which is some pretty heavy, dark magic that we've never seen before.
0: No, we have not seen before. And
1: it's very interesting to see Quoth perform this without really thinking twice about it
0: to be fair he was gonna die
1: very true and so we see the the sign of quote that kicks in when i think his his sleeping mind kind of takes over he's kind of at the end of his rope he can't think his way around it he's got to think on his feet and he's acting completely on instinct and so he's able to call down some pretty spectacular magic
0: absolutely yeah yeah i mean one of the things that that i noted I'm not quite sure how this is consistent with, like, the sympathy that we've learned. But, again, like I've I've always said, I'm never one for being a stickler on the rules for how all that stuff works. I get that there's still some heat left in the recently deceased body, you know, and maybe he's able to do some sort of link through the blood. I don't know. The thing about it is that at the university— they're not going to teach you how to do this sort of stuff, so it might be completely consistent with sympathy, but you're just never going to learn about it at the university
1: right, and you know we've certainly seen him recently able to stick a pin into an apple that has a thumbprint on it yeah and, draw and have blood. it prick the person I mean, yeah. so we've definitely seen some things that we haven't been explicitly told he is capable of before, true. So, for me, that doesn't take away from the story.
0: No, I don't think it did either, but. um,
1: It's certainly interesting, and I feel it has more implications for his character to see him kind of just cold, doing this in cold blood. Yeah, he just kind of like, he goes all Muad'Dib, and like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He sees the golden path laid out before him, and there's only one way to kill these motherfuckers.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) But the thing about it, too, is like, he does that because he really he's gonna they're gonna die,
1: right? You know, at
0: at, at a minimum, Dayton and Hespier are gonna die, absolutely. At, at an absolute minimum, and he doesn't he he knows that he has to sink himself in the heart of the stone to do it, but he still has repercussions from it. It's still not easy for him, you know. And he 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 does kind of, I don't maybe suffering meant some mental trauma is not really the way to put it but it's not as though he does it lightly.
1: That's true. Um, it's just interesting to see him, the same character who was so skittish around a bar fight, just go all natural-born killer. Yeah, he does. You know, stabbing a dead body in frustration, covered in blood. It's an interesting switch of his character, and i but not one that we haven't seen before. So it feels organic to the story, because we've seen before when Quoth goes into that instinctual mode he's capable of doing great things.
0: Yeah. The other thing too is that the imagery. Yes. The imagery in this chapter is just phenomenal. So dark and creepy and beautiful at the same time. I mean just really just a well-written chapter as far as that goes also.
1: One thing that I noticed this time that I don't think I did before is that the author points out and makes a, a note to mention that the first thing Quoth notices are wooden poles the size of fence posts scattered throughout the camp. And just as he's starting to, he's kind of like, that's odd, and then something happens. But you think, why is that sentence even in there if it's not crucial to the story?
0: Well, it is crucial to the story. How? It's what they build the barricades against. So what he notices it, then Dayton and Hesby have their little thing, and when it causes the bandits become alarmed, they think that they're, if anybody's going to attack them, it's going to be a large force. So they've built these posts in the ground at regular intervals, and then they come and they lay a bunch of planks up against them to How build the I barricade. How did I miss that?
1: How I have know. I always missed that?
0: Now uh, People miss things.
1: I guess.
0: I miss some basic stuff, too. Um, Interesting. But yeah, that's what they... I mean, that's the way I took it. Mm-hmm. I can't see any other way no, I think you're, to build a barricade.
1: Yeah, I, that's absolutely it. It
0: just shows the degree of forethought. Right. And also, because if you, when you're first looking, that is like kind of the first oh shit moment. Because when you're kind of overlooking the camp and you're trying to figure out what's going on after they just killed the sentry, you're like, okay, it could be a lot of guys there. But you don't really know. But one side of it is is exposed, and then, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters of it is kind of up against this wall, and they're looking down over top of them. But when they—when that leader walks out, starts barking orders, and, you know, Quoth recognizes him, and then they start to build that barricade, which basically encircles them, in either natural barriers or that wooden barrier, you're like, oh shit. It's, there's nothing, these guys, they've really built a, made a fortress out of this kind of natural compound. And it it causes you to realize that these are not a couple of chumps. These are a well-organized, well-thought-out, well-protected group that significantly outnumber their attackers. There's no short of what happens, there's really no reason to think that these five knuckleheads are going to be able to do anything about it.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I can't believe I've never noticed that before.
0: So the other thing is that, you know, when this is all starting to go on, Martin sees Quoth and sees what he looks like and what he's doing. And Martin who has been kind of the steadiest person in the group, starts to lose his shit.
1: He does. And when he shoots the leader of the bandits with an arrow and the guy doesn't even flinch, then he really loses his shit. Then he really
0: loses his shit. And he starts praying to Talu, and that becomes really, really critically important. You know, he's praying to Talu, you know, and he's saying, you know, Talu, keep me safe from demons in the night. To me, that was a big piece of foreshadowing. Because I think about the person who comes out of that tent right after nightfall and I'm like, yeah, you're praying to Taylor to keep you safe from demons in the night because that's a demon that you just shot in the leg. Yeah. And it's nighttime, you know, so like that's not a that's not a figurative statement. That's a literal That's a literal statement that he's saying. I know it's just a prayer that he's repeating, but I don't think he realizes just how true it is. The other thing is, so Quoth sees this cat, right? And all while this is going on, killing the initial century, killing these guys, every time Quoth does something dramatic or needs a little bit of light, the lightning is like in concert with him like it's this when he needs a new target he needs to see what's going on he peers up over the edge lightning strike it shows what's going on he's able to formulate what he's going to do the first time he stabs the body lightning strikes you know when they first find the sentry there's a huge lightning strike um and it's like right basically damn near on top of them at that point, like I'm just seeing the way this is kind of going back and forth, and it it does almost seem supernatural.
1: There's also a moment I took a note of on page 616 where a gust of wind saves him, and we always yeah, take a note when yeah. the wind plays a part. And the wind, I think, like blows an arrow away from him. Or yeah, it's
0: exactly. It's exactly what happens? Yeah, it was the last. He ki- snapped the bowstrings of all the ones that were coming after them. This is after the leader pulls the arrow out of his leg and directs everybody to go that direction. And, you know, there were six bowmen. He kill, here, breaks the bowstrings strings of five of the bows, but he can't get the sixth bow. And when he peers up over the edge, the sixth bowman shoots at him, but the wind conveniently comes along and it strikes two feet to his left instead. So all these things are going on. The other thing I noticed, and this was—he keeps talking about this leader— and he recognized him, but it's like the Mellow Ann Lackless thing that he can't put his finger on why he, why does, why does she look familiar? Why does this guy look familiar? Something about the way he moved, something about the way he carried himself, but he can't figure out what it is, you know, and, and on one hand, that's kind of frustrating. So I started really paying attention to, okay, what do we know about this cat? And there's very little that he really gives us to work with it's he's wearing chain mail a chainmail hauberk it's long he's wearing a, a chainmail coif. I think that's how you pronounce that
1: i I say coif, but
0: Coif. that makes that actually sounds better. I'll go with it. He's wearing a chainmail qu- coif, uh, coif so you can't really see it go ahead.
1: it's a chain mail queef. <laughs>
0: Damn, that's a badass queef. The (laughs) most metal of all the (laughs) queefs.
1: Sorry, I can't help it.
0: Metal queef.
1: (laughs) Continue your observations, because I'm definitely interested to hear what you think about this.
0: So you can't see the guy's hair because of the quaff. But, and I'm thinking, okay, well, does he ever describe his face, you know? Is he close enough to see his face? Maybe he's just too far away, you know. But what he does say is that he says um, he could see his mouth shouting orders. That's the only, like, that was a critical one to me. So he was close enough to be able to see his mouth moving. And then that allowed me to think, okay, well, what then doesn't he see? Because if he could see his mouth moving that tells me that it's probably not Braden, because he's seen Braden recently. And if he was that close, he probably would be able to see his face and tell. He didn't mention that the guy had black within black eyes. I don't know that he would be able to see that at that distance, but I feel, feel like if he's close enough to see his mouth moving, he probably would be close enough to see his eyes. He's also said specifically about Cinder, I'm ruling out Cinder, that even when Coates said, even today I see his face and recognize it as well as I recognize my own mother's. Which leads me to believe if it was Cinder he probably would have known.
1: I mean, my perception of the the chainmail coif was that it would partially cover his face, or be hanging down over his eyes? So I don't know how much of his face that he saw. I mean, I just no. Had a it would come perception. to the top of his right. It would
0: come to the top of his eyebrows.
1: I mean, I don't know that he'd be close enough to see see the guy's face, though.
0: I can't rule out Cinder entirely. My the evidence tells me that that I think it's less likely to be Cinder because right. I feel like if he was that close, he probably, he could have at least been able to see his eyes. And the fact that quote specifically states that he can see his, you know, that he would recognize that face anywhere. Right. right. Um, also there's some, I, I went back and read everything we know about Cinder and his movements were highly characteristic uh, you know, in the way that they were like almost liquid. Right. And while he does say there was something about the way the the guy carried himself that he recognized, he never talked about his movements being, like, that liquid grace.
1: I always picture, like, a stop, that that horror movie Mm -hmm. frame... Like that kind of jerky, I don't know anything about cinematography. Never mind. <laughs> I know what you
0: mean, and I don't know enough about cinematography either. Okay. But um so that led me to believe, okay, probably not Cinder. Also not Haliax. Because you can't see Haliax's face because it's sheathed in right. shadow. Right. So not Braden not Brayden, not Haliax, probably not Cinder.
1: So who do you think it is?
0: I think it's one of the other Chandrian. The other thing too is no blue flame, and when they're
1: it is raining. Is there even fire? Yes, I think there 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 is bonfires. There are
0: bonfires. Yeah. So no blue flame, and I feel like Cinder and the blue flame have been positively correlated.
1: Yes, on the jar, I believe he has a blue flame under him.
0: So yeah, so so I've think we can rule out Haliax Cinder for sure. Brayden, I feel like not Brayden because I feel like he probably would have recognized him if he was that close. Right. So I just think, you know, we've got five other Chandrian to go with. Clearly, it's something supernatural because he just disappears and his body's never found. But there's no... And this is getting into the next chapter, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of it, but there's no signs of the Chandrian anywhere present unless it's not a Chandrian, but some sort of other supernatural creature, you know, one of the, but the reason why, the reason why I believe it's a Chandrian is because of what happens when Martin is praying later.
1: So, yeah, go into that a little bit more.
0: So Martin is praying later and he says, in the name of Menda, protect me in the name of Menda, in the name of Periel, in the name of Ordal. in the name of Anden. And when he says that, the person looks up into the air, looks around, stops as though he's hearing something. And then immediately turns to run and goes into the tent.
1: Looks around as though something is bothering him.
0: And as the, or as though he heard something. Right. And that's when Quote says, He hears you praying. That description is precisely the description of when Haliax and the Chandrian stopped and heard the Amir coming and then fled in the chapter Hope. Right. That's precisely the description. And it's the only place we've seen that description. So it leads me to believe that it is the Chandrian. Now I looked up Menda and Periel and Andon Andin and Ordal. So Periel and Menda are the kind of Mary and Jesus figures. Right. That are referenced in, um. oh, who's the old dude? Who's the Trappist. old? Trappist. Trappist thing. I couldn't remember his name. When he's telling his story... You know, Periel is the, the Mary figure who gives birth to Mendel or Menda, and Menda is the sort of Jesus figure who really is Telu, kind of manifest. But more interesting is who are Ordal and Anden, mm-hmm. because Ordal and Anden are the two angels on the page that Nina gives Quoth, who are sitting over top of the shoulders of the Amir figure.
1: Shut up!
0: That's who they are. Good
1: catch, baby. They're the
0: two. They're the two names that are sitting on each shoulder. Yeah. of the Amir.
1: I remember that, but I did not catch that those were the two that that Martin prayed. Wow! Yeah, and
0: they are part of the original Amir. They're right. Two members of the original Amir. Um, Ordal. Let me see if I can remember. So uh, Ordal was the Amir who had never seen a living thing die, mm-hmm. and Anden was the one whose eyes uh, were burning flames filled with anger. Mm. Now, I'm not sure what that in particular means, but I think the fact that they're sitting, their names are on a piece of paper from the Talon, you know, Orange Catholic Bible or whatever the hell it is that, I can't remember the name of the book, rolled up in quotes loot case nearby
1: Right to
0: me is significant.
1: Interesting, and the fact
0: that when Martin prayed them is when the Chandrian looked up as if somebody was coming. Right, and fucking booked it and took off. Right. So then the way it ends is that again, Quoth is like, he's got Binder's chills. He's he can't use the body anymore. He he starts to laugh maniacally, like, ha, ha, I'm going insane. I've got to come up with something crazy. Mm. And he tells Martin to shoot the oak tree, and he shoots the oak tree. He shoves the arrows in the ground, and the fucking sky erupts. But that, my prediction is, that's not Quoth. Mm. That's not sympathy. That is the Amir, not the Order Amir, but the Amir... Or TeLu or somebody, using his sympathy as sort of a convenient way of hiding themselves, they were summoned by the names in the scroll, by Martin's praying, by the fact that there was a Chandrian nearby they were summoned saw what was going on and said we're going we're going to intervene and sent down all those p- bolts of lightning. It was not what Quoth
1: did. That is a very interesting theory. I I think in a in a later chapter, maybe chapter 93, he says something to the effect of he didn't know quite what he was doing, but as far as anyone was concerned, I called down lightning like light to Borland the Great.
0: Yeah, correct. He, he was happy. I don't think
1: that, he's even sure what happened. Correct. Or what part he played in it.
0: The other part too was when that happened, and I wrote down. Let me see if I can read it in my notes. Um, when that happened, he said, "Right and right before he passed out, there was a whiteness, a brightness, a noise." And so I thought, is it possible that he called the name of lightning? But then, so I went back and I read when. Quoth called the name of the wind at the end of the name of the wind and s- to see if I could just see any kind of, m- you know, meta-analysis to see mm-hmm. if it was the same phrases or terminology, and it's not. It doesn't right. sound like it at all.
1: No, it so- definitely sounds like several bolts of lightning hit the tree. Yeah. What exactly caused that is hard to say.
0: Well, I I feel like it's... My, my prediction is that it was a it was telu or the amir who who kind of intervened because not because they wanted anything to do with saving quoth's ass but because they wanted to kill a chandrian
1: that's a really good theory i like that you got anything else for this chapter
0: not for this one other than it was badass
1: it was so bad donkey <laughs> <laughs> metal
0: queef <laughs> The most metal flatulence of them all.
1: (laughs) Wow. I'm sorry, but the queef is the most metal of all the flatulences.
0: (laughs) I'm not going to deny it. It's true. Hey, you know what? (laughs) I've never queefed, so I I can't say. (laughs) But if I did, I would hope I would chainmail queef.
1: (laughs) So chapter 92.
0: Let's get back to our professional, normal professional selves.
1: It's called Taborlin the Great. It's very short.
0: Very short, yes.
1: And I actually may have taken the shortest amount of notes on this. I wrote two words. What'd you write? He lives. Yeah. You know, chapter 91 sort of, I mean, you know he he lives, but our hero was in dire straits at the end of that chapter. And chapter 91 is 92 is basically him just waking up, being like, okay, I'm alive. Everyone's in awe of him. He's pretty happy with himself.
0: Yeah, it's Martin, you, know, you hear Martin and, you hear Martin and Dayton kind of speaking in the background, but you can only hear Martin's side of it, because is kind of in and out of consciousness. And you get the impression that Dayton's like, let's just fucking go, or let's leave him, or something. I get the impression that Dayton's trying to do something kind of negative, and Martin's like, or maybe he's just trying to get the story out of Martin, and Martin's like, I don't fucking want to talk about right. it. You know? Um The other thing I noted, this was, I don't know why I wrote these notes in this chapter, but I feel like as fucked up as Quoth was at the end of chapter 91, hypothermic, binder's chills, all of that, if he had, and he talked about the slippage, it's like the slippage alone should kill me, you know, if he had called down that much power on his own through sympathy, it would have killed him.
1: Well, and it's interesting because when I turned the page in my notes, I actually wrote down the page number and the exact quote. Mm. Um, on page 621, he says, Honestly, I don't know if I can take credit for the lightning striking when and where it did.
0: That's probably why I wrote it in that chapter. Right. Yeah. Mm.
1: Right. But then he says, But as far as anyone else is concerned, I called down lightning. Hell yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, and the other part of it, too, is that I think as far as the Amir Taylor or whoever, in my opinion, there was divine intervention, but whoever it was who intervened, they're just as happy for quote, to take the credit for it as well. Right. You know, as far as I can tell, it's interesting because you know, what I'm hypothesizing is quite literally deus ex machina. Yeah. But I feel like it's earned because so much has been built up into the story and so much has been laid into it
1: see i don't think it's deus ex machina if it doesn't come from out of nowhere well
0: i just met the literal definition of oh, the hand of god yeah. like yeah, yeah, you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. i didn't mean it from a device standpoint right. but it's quite literally a divine intervention right. that saves them right you know 93
1: 93 and it's called mercenaries all
0: yeah <laughs> I don't pay attention to the names, so I
1: love the chapter titles. Oh, that's a good one; they're yeah. good.
0: And Quoth shows that he's he's one of the guys, just one of the guys, right? Tavlin the Great, and just one of the guys.
1: So, in this chapter, starts off the Scooby Gang is kind of just recovering. I'm sorry, these are, this is not the Scooby Gang. No, this the Scooby is the, Gang is back
0: at, That's right, at the university. The Scooby Gang is this is not the, the Scooby Gang. Friends, no, these are the Jets.
1: The Jets.
0: When you're a jet, you're a jet. You're always a jet, from your last dying breath to your first cigarette. I don't know the melody, so. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the gang.
0: Fine, the gang
1: <laughs> recovers. It's
0: the D and D party.
1: The D and D party. They're
0: the D- they're the D and D party. True. That's what it is.
1: Uh, they do find out that one sentry got away. Yeah. So someone has gone on to tell the tale. Which is you back know, back to whoever Dayton, Dayton was organizing all of this astutely
0: says is probably good for us.
1: Right. Um, a, another interesting thing that happens is that when they go to bury the dead, when Quoth sees the sentry that he hacked all the pieces, he goes off and is sick. Yeah, and, and he
0: he buries him and. You can tell there is some emotional turmoil there for him.
1: So he didn't go off and just kind of randomly become a psychopath. Yeah, Which is nice to know.
0: It's nice to know that he's got a certain amount of remorse about desecrating the body of the dead in order to kill a bunch of people.
1: Right. So they also find out that in, in addition to one of the sentries, there's no sign of the leader's body. And obviously he got away.
0: Correct. Which, you know, given the state of everything else in that tent... Seems impossible, right? Seems impossible that that could have happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, a tree fell on the flaming right after exp- he went into it.
0: Yeah, it just does not seem possible. But there, so I, I, some of the things that they don't find are interesting to me.
1: Oh, like what?
0: So they don't find any discernible marks of the Chandrian that I can tell. True. Now there was like all that charred wood. So that could have potentially covered one of the signs, you know, if one of the signs was like wood, that kind of wood rotting. So that could have covered that potentially, but I didn't see any other signs of the Chandrian, which is strange because it seems fairly clear that this was a member of the Chandrian. Right. But maybe, maybe not, maybe we're wrong. You know, we don't, quite know what all the pecking order of all the supernaturals and metaphysicals in the world are Are that's out there. The other thing is they don't recognize any of the bodies so none of them are any of the men from the inn which when right. I was reading it I was speculating okay maybe that's who they are. They do find one box of gold which there's some stuff with that but they don't find any others. Hmm. They only find the one
1: it's a pretty big box though.
0: Yeah, but that's not the story we're being told. Now, like and they didn't they they didn't find a bunch of gold on the other guys. They just found this one locked box with exactly 200 golden marks and a map to their fucking fortress in the woods.
1: You know, I don't remember enough about what Alvaron said to him. Oh,
0: I went back and read it. Okay. So, lay it on me. Well, essentially, he said that, you know, this is what's going on. They've waylaid several of my tax, you know, shipments, and that he suspects that there's magic and that's why he needs somebody out there. And that also he suspects that one of his guards are involved. That's pretty much all that he that he says, and they break out a map, and they kind of look on the map at where the stretch of wood is, but that's about it. So he doesn't really say a whole lot one way or the other. Um, I was kind of focusing on the stuff that's not there, you know, no signs of the Chandrian. They don't recognize any of the guys, um, and that there's no other boxes. But at the same point in time, clearly there have been bandits attacking other wagons. Right. So that either means it's just a detail that they chose not to elaborate on or that it's a different group of bandits.
1: Or the bandits only kept one box and yeah. put all the gold into consolidated. Well,
0: I don't think, I don't think that's the case because they couldn't open the box and they never found a key for the box. The box is, there's something critical about that damn box. There's a big clue in that box. And the thing that I cannot, for the love of God, wrap my brain around is why that map was in there. And why that, not just that it was a map, but why that map was in there with an X marking the spot of the fucking bandits hideout.
1: Well, I mean, obviously, to me, it seems like, okay, whoever the leader was joined the bandits later, maybe even took a group of bandits and sort of turned them into more of a military force.
0: Could be. I mean, I guess I'm assuming that, I I guess, and I I just now thought of this, I guess I'm assuming that they, like Dayton and Hesby and Martin, or I guess Martin and Hesby, could not open the
1: box. Right. But that's assuming that there's not a key somewhere that was lost. T-
0: true. That's what I'm saying. So it like I'm p- breaking my mind trying to figure out why this map is here. I'm like there's something bigger going on because I've been assuming that Quoth is the first person to ever open this box.
1: But if the leader disappeared with the key on him, that's yeah, pretty yeah. plausible.
0: Y- yeah. Which like, uh, yeah, what I'm getting at is now that that very obvious thing has crossed my mind, suddenly it seems a lot less mysterious. Right. But if, but again, then that means somebody sent the leader out there.
1: Which is very interesting.
0: Could it have been that Braden summoned through one of his weird metaphysical, you know, summonings, he summoned down a Chandrian and then said, go run this thing abandoned. What? That doesn't seem like It doesn't seem right. And why would a Chandrian be? See, everything I can puzzle out in my brain about, like, I'm trying to think of reasons for people to be there um, and reasons why somebody might have, have, I don't know. There's just, there's nothing I can come up with that doesn't seem super far-fetched.
1: I mean, in addition to this, we have a trained arcanist who is being obviously directed by someone to slowly poison the mayor. Yeah, true. You know, not kill him, but keep him ill for years and years and years. Yeah. You know, and then this happening on the mayor's lands. So there's some kind of intrigue. There's something going on. There's
0: definitely some sort of intrigue. And And I think it, I think it ties back to Mayor Alvaron. Yes. Um, The other thing I noticed in the conversation that Quoth has with Mayor Alvaron, you know, back when he sends them out there. He, quote, says, I need a couple people who know how to, to handle themselves in the woods and know how to be quiet. And Mayor Alvaron's like, I've already selected the people for you. And if he real, and, and I I don't want to read too much into this because chances are Mayor Alvaron did not know these people individually. But if you think about Dayton, is he, is he somebody who knows how to be quiet in the woods? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's somebody who knows I how mean, to do fucking I mean I would think jacket. the mayor
1: probably had his head of security or <laughs> someone yeah, else yeah, be yeah. like pick yeah. me a pick me a bunch of yeah of mercenaries
0: but yeah I'm just trying to puzzle my head around what this intrigue is and everything I can come up with seems like a road too far to go you yeah. know what I mean
1: yeah it's interesting
0: like it's like I'm like is did mayor Alvaron put that map in that box and send Quoth out there on purpose but again if he wanted to kill him there's a lot of easier ways to do he it. You could hang
1: him on a gibbet. Yeah, exa- He could hang his head from the city gates. Nobody would stop him. He yeah. definitely didn't need to.
0: Well, but again, what I'm saying, everything I can come up with, it just it doesn't make sense. Brayden summoning the Chandrian to, to do what? To,
1: to... Steal tax money? Yeah. A, it, it makes no make, sense. It doesn't make
0: any sense. Right. It's way too far to go. You know, so there's something simpler going on. Right. That I just haven't been able to figure out yet Brayden's definitely involved because of the timing of it and the location are highly suspicious but I sure as hell can't figure out what it
1: is right yeah it's definitely a mystery so let's talk about Quoth deciding to share around some of the some of the booty
0: yeah I thought I mean we'll see if it comes back to bite him I don't think it will I think it was just a. I think it was just a smart move. It was, you know, I agree. of him saying, "Hey, we're not going to become bandits. We're going to go back and we're going to we're going to take this back." But at the same point in time, let's do what we can to buy some loyalty here and and to make everybody walk away happy. And Mayor Alvaron's not going to miss uh, what turns out to be eight <laughs> <laughs> gold marks, you know. And he and they really did go above and beyond, you know. And yeah, I thought it was cool.
1: I do as well, I think that was a bit of cleverness on his part that they all get to walk away a little bit richer but still get to feel virtuous about it because they're not robbing them air blind
0: yeah absolutely yeah
1: and so what about Tempe asking Quoth to teach him the loot
0: yeah that was that was very exciting to me I mean John Goodman's fat fingers are not going to be <sighs> they're not going to be nimble, <laughs> and he shoves his he shoves his pack filled with the old dirty underwear, the whites. <laughs> no, I thought it was cool because Temp because Quoth asked Tempe to teach him how to use a sword and Tempe agrees if Quoth will teach Tempe to play the lute. I thought that was pretty cool. And the fact that Tempe is clearly enthralled by, by Quoth's ability to play music that way, you know, I, and we don't know enough to know why he's so, Enamored. It seems like music is something significant in Adamic culture, but we don't really know what it is.
1: Well, particularly since he reacted so strongly to both singing a few lines of a ditty and then asking him to sing, and he blushed and was like, "No." Yeah. So it's it's obvious that music is seen differently,
0: clearly among the Adim. Clearly.
1: And so this also has the last line of this chapter. I just love it. Where he says the time and tide make merc make us mercenaries all, and that always yeah. just really sticks with me
0: I mean these books are well written, like you really you really cannot deny it, and just what I said last episode would not happen. they would not have a big huge d and d fight, would not find the bandit camp, would not kill them all, would not collect their loot, and would not then go home is exactly what happens
1: and I love it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's you all. Think I've he's come. gonna
1: subvert a trope? He doesn't. <laughs> you never know.
0: He could do it. He could not do it. No, I feel like this happened in an episode of D and D, and he's like, "Oh, it would be a great story," <laughs> which for most authors would be an insult, but
1: but he does it well.
0: But he does it really well. So, so I don't really care where the idea came from. No, there's st- but there's still so m- I like, I could talk for another hour and I won't about what is going on with that box that nobody could open. And he, you know, he taps it and says, Edro and the box opens up and he's like, and this is where I said earlier, his confident observations about what's going on in the world are, are wrong. So he says, clearly what happened was that they had loosened up the locks enough. And I just got lucky and opened it up. And I'm like, no, that's not what happened.
1: Just like when I ask you to open jars for me and I loosen them for you first, well, and then you open them for in me. In the
0: future, I'll say Edro before <laughs> before I open them, it'll make you feel, it'll make me feel better. <laughs> so, pickle jar, bow to my will. Pickle jar, will you, would you be willing to open up for us, please? <laughs> Fucking jar!
1: <laughs> open up! Anyway... So next week, we're going to go over chapters 94 through 103. Oh, I can't wait to read.
0: I can't wait to start reading. I
1: know. We changed our recording schedule a bit, so you had to wait a little bit longer. It's been like
0: 11 days. To start
1: the next (laughs) section. So I know you're going to look forward to that.
0: Yes, I'm very excited about getting back to reading. It's been tough as we're getting later in this book because things are getting more exciting. I'm reading it all in one sitting, and then Mm. I'm having to wait an entire week before I can read again, <laughs> right? So it's getting tough, but um, but yeah, really, really awesome stuff. So predictions,
1: predictions. Okay, all right.
0: So the lead, so my prediction number one is the leader of the bandits is a Chandrian. Okay, I think we made that clear. Quoth um, didn't call the lightning; it was uh, Andon and Ordal or Talu, right? Who did? Uh, d- I, this is one that I can't believe this is the first time I've. I'm sure it's not the first time I've thought this, but it's the first time I've really attempted to kind of articulate it, that what Quoth is trying to do with the Chandrian and what he's trying to do with Denna are all going to somehow come to a head together. Like, I was asking questions last week, is this about what's going to happen with Denna or is this about what's going to happen at the Chandrian? And then I sort of realized, no, that's, those are going to coincide. Those two storylines are going to come together to a point at some point at the end. And my speculation is that Dennis family were killed by agents of the Amir.
1: That's the most amazing speculation. I... You said that to me the other day. You couldn't wait for the podcast. But remember how I jumped up and down? You did. I've yeah. never I've never heard or read that before. I could be wrong. Um, but I really think that works when you think about how Denna seems to be on sort of a parallel quest of her mm-hmm. own. Part of that quest is writing a song that's that is sympathetic to The Chandrian. The Haliax, who is the first of the Chandrian. It's so interesting. What if her family was killed by the Amir, and she's on a quest to find them and destroy them? And we Kvothe know the Amir are not all good. They're not. Well, they're for the greater good, but, so they say, yeah. you know, certainly would wipe out a family if they thought it was for the greater good.
0: I don't even know that it's, I don't even know that it goes that far because of the scene when Quoth is almost dying in the snow and there, and like that angel is like hover clearly marked as one of the Amir or very similar is hovering over there, just waiting for him to die so it can devour his soul. It doesn't seem like the greater good has a whole lot to do with it. Like, I feel like that might be something that has been ascribed to them right, rather than who they actually are.
1: Well, and certainly on the pot, the painting of the pot, the Amir is the most terrifying figure on it.
0: Yeah. And then you go back and you read the stuff with Haliax and like, the Chandrian are clearly evil. Like let's not right. somehow say that they're like mistaken good guys. But Haliax does not seem like the bloodthirsty killer that he's necessarily made out to be. And we know he's been cursed. Is there something else going on there with him? And I think clear I think there is, you know, which doesn't necessarily mean he's not evil, but but I just don't think it's as clear cut as the Amir are angels and the Chandrian are demons, it's just not going to be that clear cut. I think it's going to be, you know, I don't think there's any good guys in any of that. The other part of it too is if you think about the Amir as they're described when Alif kind of makes them the Amir, some of them seem to be good, and some of them, like uh, Andon, it's mentioned, is filled with anger.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, so could it be that? You know, it's not that they're necessarily good or bad. They're just all different.
1: Right. I think that's a possibility. I think that's a really good prediction, though, and I can't wait to see how that pans out.
0: Yeah, there's something like that going on as far as Dana goes. So that's all I got.
1: Nice. Man. Any um, questions? from listeners or comments to address. Yeah. I think we forgot to do that last week.
0: Well, we definitely have a lot of questions that we wanted to go over. And then we got some, a little bit of fandom news stuff that we want to go over too. So don't, don't, don't let me forget to come back to that. But we, we got a lot of questions. We asked for questions last week and then we forgot to get to them. So I'm going to get into the questions. Some of these are from this week. Some of these are from last week, but, uh, Ian said, uh who is the who is this guy? Who is the leader? You know. Right. And I think we've, you know, we discussed at least I think it's uh I think it's a, cha- a member of the Chandrian, right. not Cinder, not Haliax, but some other member of the Chandrian is who I think it is. And then Ian um Ian Crone also said, "Who's your fantasy cast for Felurian? And I'm not falling for that. <laughs> I am a married man. <laughs> I am not dating. I ain't touching that motherfucker with a 10 foot pole. Do you have a fantasy cast for Fallurian?
1: Winona Ryder.
0: Now that's just wrong. <laughs> Young Winona Ryder?
1: I'm just saying that because she's your favorite. She is my favorite. I did that for you. That's
0: very sweet of you. <laughs>
1: no, I mean, for me, I would say Angelina Jolie. I don't no. get it. You don't get what?
0: I don't get all the hullabaloo about Angelina Jolie.
1: Well, then she's just your Channing Tatum. Clearly. Cuz I don't get the hullabaloo about them. No offense, Channing, if you're listening. Yeah. You're I'm sure you're a lovely person. I don't I don't get that thing.
0: I don't feel the same way about Angelina Jolie. I think she's a fucked up mess. Okay. I'm just, for the record.
1: We're purely objectifying these celebrities right now. We're not trying to, like, no, gauge I, their personalities. No,
0: I know who Angelina Jolie is.
1: <laughs>
0: no, of course I don't. I have no fucking clue. Anyway, moving on. So Ian also asked, does Patrick Rothfuss follow the D&D party idea just a little bit too closely? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you answer that.
1: You know, like I, I think I shared this last time in the beginning of this section, and especially the first couple of times I read it, it turned me off a little bit. But I feel that there's enough character development in the chapters that we get to know these guys that it works for me. And the end battle is so satisfying and well-written that overall the package works for me.
0: I think overall as well. I mean, I kind of want to wait to make a judgment on that to see kind of what the fallout is because it does seem very typical. And if you if you kind of compare this to going back to like Traben in the last book— where it was like, here's a typical D and D quest. We're going to go kill a dragon, but it was anything but typical, you know. Right. It, it. I also didn't find it nearly as exciting as this. Right. So this, you know, plays much more to the to the um, to the trope, and it seems like everything just kind of goes forward in a fairly straightforward fashion. But I want to I want to read a little bit more before I make an opinion on that. Uh, Let's see. Adam asks, would we be willing to do a video podcast? Hmm. And, I mean, I have an opinion about that. Go ahead. So, I'm not opposed to it, but, one, we don't really have the technology to do it right now. And, frankly, if we recorded just us doing the podcast like we do right now, sitting here on our couch facing each other, it would be boring as fuck.
1: Also, we would have to put on pants.
0: We'd also have to wear pants. (laughs) And that's not cool. I'm
1: just kidding. We're wearing pants, you guys.
0: You know what? (laughs) Right now, one of us is wearing pants. (laughs) So I'm not opposed to doing a video, but I feel like we we would need to come up with something that was a little bit more appropriate for video because videoing... The podcast and putting it out there, I think I don't think would do anybody any good.
1: Well, we we definitely have some plans in the upcoming year to do some different events, some cosplay events uh, mm-hmm. because the Duke and I like to dress up, and maybe taking some video at different cons that we go to. That sort of thing. I can't promise any dates, but it's definitely something that we are kicking around and trying to figure out how to make work logistically. So, if you'd like to see Chad dressed up as a sandworm from Dune.
0: <laughs> Show up at
1: Comic-Con. Let us know. Because <laughs> we can make, might be able to make that happen. It's, we're working on it. We're, we're working, working on it.
0: it. I'm going to go as Lito the second. All right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm not opposed to that idea, but I wouldn't just set up a camera in the room where we podcast. I, I don't see that being added value for anybody. So not a real straightforward answer but uh, but um but yeah if we find something like that that we can do that we that makes sense as a video then yeah i think we would do that. Theo asks does the fight bend the rules of sympathy? And and we mm. kind of ask that as well. And again i'm not a guy who pays too much attention to it. I definitely kind of scratch my head a little bit and go how does that does that make sense? in terms of the link and all that stuff, but I've never paid enough attention to it to really debunk it.
1: Well, and some of the magics, I mean, the magic system in this book is very well explained. It is. It's very logical. We've talked about that before, but there are also segments of him learning about the magic system that I believe are deliberately glossed over so that leaves room for him to do things like this.
0: And the other part of it is, like I said, I mean, if, if we're talking specifically about the huge lightning bolt from the sky that killed 23 motherfuckers, um, I mean, they weren't all killed by the lightning bolt, but basically decimated the part the uh, bandit party. N- yeah, that's outside of the bounds of sympathy because I don't think it was a sympathy thing. I think it was a, a different thing at play.
1: I think it's also very well established that the Arcanist today... The, the people that have been training Quoth have a fraction of the power that the Arcanists once had. Correct. So when we see glimpses of Quoth being able to do things that maybe the groundwork for that skill hasn't been laid in the book, I think we can kind of pin it on well, he's doing things that people once used to be able to do.
0: The other thing I think we notice too is that Quoth is improving at an incredible pace. Yes. Like his sympathy skills from when he got his ass handed to him by Devi to where he is now, th- you really can't compare them.
1: He's on the edge.
0: Yeah, he is on the edge and he's learning for sure. So, I I I have the same question that Theo does. Um with the exception that I really don't think the huge lightning bolt from the sky had anything to do with sympathy. Izzy says does "quoth" give you an Anakin Skywalker Dark Side kind of vibe? Oh, for sure. Minus the Hayden Christensen.
1: Thank God. Right. Right.
0: Because we we can't allow that image to sully what we've been building here in our own minds. Right. I won't allow it. <laughs>
1: it's not cool, damn it. Walter Sobchak notwithstanding.
0: No, the, no, come on. The Walter Sobchak in the bright red leathers—that's funny. That's just funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that's enough of the questions. Um, I want to go back before we get into listener interactions and talk about a little bit of fan news, because we both had a reboot sort of related thing that we wanted to discuss. And All my, right. Go and, ahead. And mine is probably the shorter one. So apparently, and I wish I had more of the details, but there's a director out there, I believe he's in the, uh, from the Netherlands, who is going to reboot and do another movie for Frank Herbert's Dune.
1: Really?
0: Yeah, we'll see. Well, one, we'll see if it happens. But it appears so far to have some some decent money backers behind it. I think, a te- and, and he wants to write something that is more true to the books, mm. which there was already a sci-fi miniseries that was pretty true to the books, but it wasn't. The acting wasn't great. The budget wasn't great. This person is very kind of anti-David Lynch's Dune. Mm -hmm. But I just think doing Dune as a movie is a mistake. Really? I don't think it adapts well to it. Despite the fact that David Lynch's Dune is still one of my favorite movies. But it's one of my favorite movies in spite of the fact that it is horridly flawed.
1: It's pretty terrible.
0: It's a terrible movie. I still love it. I know you do. I still love it. And we could talk in detail about that some other time. But yeah, so apparently they're attempting to reboot Dune. We'll see.
1: Well, that is very interesting. It actually ties well into what I want to talk about. I have to like do some calming breaths. <laughs> Should I bring I, you a baby goat? Before I talk about this. I'm okay. Should I don't we need do the, some yoga? I don't need the goat. But we need to talk about this. We need to address this issue. We need to put it out there. That apparently, a friend of mine texted me the other day and gave me this news. Apparently, they are planning to reboot, in movie form, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Without the blessing or involvement of Joss Whedon. I'm clenching my fists, you guys
0: that's like having a beatles reunion tour without any of the beatles being there
1: exactly what can we just talk about this for a minute you guys okay because and let's compare this we've got david lynch's dune yeah which was made before the special effects technology really existed to do that story well
0: yeah
1: it's a cuckoo bananas version of the book i mean let's just say that okay oh, yeah it's That's, crazy town
0: which is why i love it
1: you know i actually saw the movie before i read the book i saw the movie i was like this is a fucking weird movie <laughs> yeah. and then i read the book and i was like wow this is a good book like, like it's
0: not even about the same thing at all
1: <laughs> what is going on here it was wild okay this is a movie that in my opinion is ripe for a reboot whether it maybe could be a trilogy I don't know about packing it all and putting the Dune universe into one movie. No, can't, but be, I think can't be done. It's an interesting concept. It's it it could be done well. It I see why someone would want to try and tell that story because well. Because
0: it, it's unresolved. Nobody's it's, done it really well.
1: Thank you. It's unresolved. You know, you've got this fantastic book, this iconic book that's influenced so many works after it and no one's done a really good film version of no, it. No, they haven't. So I get why you would do that. Why are we trying to do Buffy again?
0: I don't know, that makes no sense.
1: Why? I mean, this story was told. Okay? It's not that old. All right. No. It's you know, it wasn't a matter of the technology being there to do well, the effects or to tell the story effectively. Well, think
0: about it like think about it like Firefly. Serenity. Right. Okay. The movie came because you didn't get to tell the story. Right. You needed to resolve it. Right. Buffy
1: resolved. We had seven seasons and they were by no means perfect. No, not at all. And I, I think we were talking about doing an entire podcast, maybe, on just breaking down Buffy. But maybe not you. Maybe I'll do no, it. No, I won't be involved, we- but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to bring in some guests for that one. <laughs> but it was a beautifully told story. This The vision of Joss Whedon was, in my opinion, told to completion. Fulfilled. And it's done. And he has said that. This story's done. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not interested in the digging this back up. The
0: has awakened.
1: So it got me thinking about, well, I started thinking how these unnecessary reboots are like number two on my list of why I think we might be just done as a species. <laughs> I, I really do. like. <laughs> We, guys, we might just be done, okay? Number one on that list is unsolicited dick pics, okay? And the, the speed at which those are sent, okay? And then that got me thinking. <laughs> efficiency. The efficiency. Okay, so look, check it out. In our day, if you wanted to send someone an unsolicited picture... Of your genitals. I would like, have to
0: draw it on paper.
1: You had to work for that. You had to drive to the photo hut and wait an hour and hope, like, the person waiting on you was cool. You had to buy a stamp. You had to find someone's address. Yeah, yeah. Like, it weeded out all but the most committed photographers. <laughs> okay.
0: You had to be really committed to sending pictures of your genitalia. <laughs> you had to
1: really want it. Now, it's like two flicks of your thumb. And your junk is in someone else's bone. You sent it to the entire
0: high school senior class.
1: Just like that. It's too easy, okay? Just because you can do it does not mean we all need to see it, okay? (laughs) Show that shit to your wife. I'm sure she'll appreciate your Buffy reboot. We don't all need it in our eyeballs, you guys.
0: No, that's, it's like bad fanfic. Just because you can write it doesn't mean we all need to read it.
1: And I mean, and let's be fair, we're going to see it.
0: Oh, we'll see it.
1: Everyone's going to see it.
0: Yeah, we'll see it.
1: But just because you know everyone will look doesn't mean you should do it. You're not making the world a better place by putting that out there. (laughs) Please, with the unnecessary reboots, keep your pants on. (laughs) That's all I'm asking.
0: I think the parallels.
1: It's uncanny, right? It's amazing. It really is.
0: It's basically the same thing.
1: It's basically the same thing.
0: So all you people who want to have a fifth rendition of Spider-Man.
1: Please.
0: Keep your dick in your
1: pants.
0: (laughs) You're basically the 20-year-old dude who thinks every female who's ever looked at him needs to see his genital and wants to see his genitalia.
1: We don't want to see it.
0: Oh, my goodness. I love it. I love it. Alright, so some other some other interactions that we had from fans. Big congratulations to Kingles on the birth of his son.
1: He is adorable. Yes.
0: Sadly not named uh Quoth or Denahater. <laughs> and that was a, a joke directly from Kingles. So uh so congrats, beautiful baby and congrats to you. Enjoy that baby. Because they grow up. Uh, Theo said he's not a fan of the edemic hand gestures Okay, as an idea. Right. Says clever, but if you really think about it, it doesn't work. doesn't make any sense. I, I, I kind of think he's got a point.
1: He does. And, and my point to that is maybe Patrick Rothfuss is making a commentary on what we consider civilized, and how a lot of what we do to be civilized maybe doesn't make a lot of sense either. And that's true.
0: That's you know? definitely true, yeah.
1: And cultural differences. You know, the thing that I loved the most was when Quoth first started to realize that there was a language barrier was when he asked Tempe, how close did the ADEM stand? And this is a very real world thing. You know, different cultures have different levels of comfort with personal space being encroached. Absolutely. You know, uh, Eastern cultures, they stand much closer. They talk much closer. Western cultures tend to stand further apart. And it's these unspoken language barriers that really create a lot of problems in the world. So it's interesting to see that come up here. And I think this could be a deliberate commentary on that.
0: Yeah, it could be. And I I, I agree with you that I think it's problematic. I think there's, there are issues with it that make it impractical. But it's not something that I would really choose to put a lot of effort or time into. I'm not going to like be like, this book is stupid because of the ademic hand Right. And, and, and that's not what he's saying either. But but I agree with him. There are some issues with it. Ryan King, who is at, I'm going to try to say this right, um, Rex Aliquid. Or Aliquid. Aliquid. Man, I thought I had it and now I don't have it. Okay, he said he's all caught up, and now he has to wait a week for the podcast.
1: Oh, man, I can't know. binge listen.
0: I know, right? That's a rough point. That's where a lot of people jump off. Like, I wouldn't blame him, and the fact that I butchered his name twice. Uh, Rodney at Taddy Coat Monkey says, Are you going to do a Game of Thrones season finale episode?
1: Mm.
0: I feel like the window is passed.
1: Maybe. So we'll
0: there are a lot of circumstances that we we had fully intended to. And then a number of circumstances happened. The minor of which on our part was we had some construction and we still have some construction on our house and didn't have a TV. So right after the season ended, we had to kind of put our TV in the basement for a while and didn't get a chance to relook at it. But the much, much larger reason why we didn't do it is because we were going to do a joint podcast with Cast Request. And they got hit by a goddamn hurricane.
1: Good old Harvey.
0: So now
1: they're okay. And we're yeah, we're yeah. glad to hear about that. And,
0: you know, when you when you look at what's going on with that, suddenly the idea of doing like a, you know, a season finale episode, a Game of Thrones podcast, seems a lot less important. And so it kind of just got pushed to the back burner with all of that. And now I just sort of feel like you know I, I just it's, feel it, like the window I passed. would
1: say that's up in the air okay yeah I would say that's up in the air we may we may not
0: okay yeah so more to come on that Patrick Sponagle says uh time to mow the lawn and listen to the D&D podcast
1: you mow that lawn Patrick that's
0: right you mow it down Felicia at Targaryen underscore trash said a <laughs> podcast that talks about King Killer and a song of ice and fire thanks for existing
1: I hope the queef dog didn't turn anyone off.
0: No, that's... (laughs) How could you? The most metal of all the flatulence. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Izzy said the sleeping, waking mind continuum was awesome. Even after reading both books, I was so confused about the differences between alchemy, sympathy, and artificing. Awesome. Uh, Justin Berger said, not a fan of the vintage court, but loved the whole bandit hunt section. Theo also said he loved the bandit hunt, hunt section. And then we got one more review on iTunes, and it is Sweet. from L. Schmidt, who says, I love them. Great book. You can't go wrong. Awesome. So, oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. That's everything I got.
1: All right. Let's wrap it up.
0: I think it's time to. No reason to mosey on with needless analogies about how John Goodman is the greatest Swede in American society.
1: You need to stop with that, John Goodman.
0: Listen, it's, it's late. I don't make apologies, but I'm also not going to defend it either.
1: <laughs> you know what, everyone? We're going to see you in episode 23. Good night. Good night.
0: night.